Well, good morning. We're going through a series called Biblical Relationships uh, here at City Reach Marion. And one of the reasons we're doing that is because from time to time, there are topics that we don't uh, cover uh, when we're uh, going through books of the Bible. So we ordinarily would look at a book in the Bible, like Matthew's Gospel, which we've taken a pause from, just be, and we'll come back to that just before Easter. And we go through these uh, books of the Bible, sort of chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and see what God has to say to us. But from time to time, we go through topics. And one of those important uh, topics is relationships. And uh, we have gone through, uh, I guess in logical order, we went through sort of friendship, dating, marriage. And I was chatting to uh, one of our pastors this week, and I said, oh, you know, next week we've got um, children and families. They said, no, 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 there's something before that. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's right, sex. And, you know, because it's logical, right? And it makes me think of that. It's not quite a nursery rhyme, but it's the um, sort of the, the schoolyard song. I don't know if it says, uh, first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes the baby in the baby's carriage. But there's something in the middle there that we often miss out. And, and you know what? I haven't preached a sermon on sex before, so it's a little bit daunting, actually. Um, but here we go. Let's, let's give it a go. Uh, let's give it a go and see what actually God has to say about sex, because it's very interesting. Uh, there's probably a lot more than you think uh, in the Bible about sex. There's a whole book called The Song of Solomon, which there's probably more and less than you think about sex in there, and I could explain that maybe another time when we look at that book as a whole. But there's three things I want to tell you about sex this morning. Uh, The first is how we ought to treat sex. It's from the Bible and from God's view. The second thing is how sex treats us, which is very interesting. And then thirdly, we're going to see how Jesus treats us. Okay? So, how we ought to treat sex, how sex treats us, and then how Jesus treats us. So firstly, how we ought to treat sex. Now, in our um, text for today, and if you've got your Bibles with you, keep it open. Uh, Luke chapter 7, verse 36 to 50. We see a kind of clash of sex and religion here. And that's pretty, uh, I guess, practical for our day and age because I feel like these two things, I don't know about you feel this way, but I feel like these two things are always clashing in our culture and our time and place. Sex and religion seem to be against one another. We have uh, sort of a couple of prominent figures in the text in addition to Jesus. We have uh, a woman who's called a woman of the city. So when you think woman of the city, we should think in our day and age, sort of sex in the city. You know, the, the, the TV show, which has just been rebooted, sex in the city, sort of promiscuous, um, progressive, uh, very modern views about sex and sexuality. Uh, so that's one character in the text. And then we have a very religious man. It's called a Pharisee, which the sort of religious conservatives of the day, who were actually, uh, had a bit of, sort of political power, you could say, and and religious power over people. And so this is conservative view. So you might think of the uh, old TV show Seventh Heaven, for example, when you're thinking about those two views. Now, you can imagine those two uh, groups or ideas together, those people together, there's going to be a clash, isn't there? And Jesus is right in the middle teaching us about his grace and about how we have attitudes towards sex. So it's very interesting. Now, when it comes to how we ought to treat sex, I think there's three um, views on the whole uh, within people in general and particularly 
uh, amongst Christians. And, and the first are probably the most common. First two are the most common. Uh, that is that sex is either God, that is we almost worship sex, it becomes an ultimate and sort of highest thing. And that's, and that's probably the most prominent view in uh, our Western culture. Or more historical view in Western culture, but certainly uh, still around today, is that sex is gross. That sex is gross. So they're the, the most common, and they're the first two views I want to look at. Sex is either God, as is worshipped, or sex is gross, and we try and sort of avoid it. So, sex, to some people, is God. That is, it goes from something that we do to something that we are. You notice that the language around sexuality has changed from sort of an action to an identity? of the recent 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So your sexuality is more about who you are. In fact, many would say that's the deepest and most personal and most important thing about who they are. And so therefore, we must express it fully. That's the prevailing view. So, And it really goes beyond sort of the, the pure physicality of it, beyond lust. And it becomes almost spiritual to people. That is, sex is so fundamental to our purpose that without sort of placing our identity in sex and our sexuality, we would lose our human identity. We're not a real person unless our sexuality is not just expressed but endorsed by the culture around us. This is the prevailing view and the sort of direction that uh, our Western society and culture is going in. So your, your, views on, your personal view on sexuality must be endorsed by the culture, must be progressive. You can sort of do what you want to some degree. The, uh, the idea that love is love expresses that you need to do what makes you feel right and true to yourself as a human being. And if you are being inauthentic, then you're being repressed. And society, religion and culture is at fault. Okay? Now, a good example of this back in 2011... Uh, was and, and between the connection of sort of sexuality and even spirituality was a song by Lady Gaga called Born This Way. Does anyone remember that, 2011? And that became a bit of an anthem uh, for many people. And one of the reasons, and the, one of the things that she said about it is that uh, she felt that uh, songs of a previous era that were sort of about uh, removing the repression of women had a sense of gospel or spirituality to them. And so you notice that the words and the lyrics that she uses in that song connect sexuality and spirituality together and saying you are inauthentic to your true self, the most important and deepest meaning of what it means to be a human and your identity. You, are, you can only be true to those if you express your sexuality entirely the way that you feel. So we're going to get the basic equation that sex or sexuality equals spirituality or human identity at its most fundamental view. There is a big danger, though, if you view sex in a sort of a worshipful way. You're trying to get from it who you are most deeply as a person. And the danger is this, that sex itself can become a tyrant to you. That is, it promises much but delivers little. That, so think about it this way. If you cannot be fulfilled by sexuality and though everything inside of you feels that it ought to be, then you'll be utterly disappointed. And if people around you don't endorse what you want and your desires to be fulfilled spiritually through sexuality, then you'll be utterly disappointed and left without identity and purpose in your life. 
It's demanding things that sex can't give you. It's demanding things that sexuality can't give you as a person. No wonder there is such a struggle for people who are wrestling with these issues and trying to get identity from it, because I tell you, it cannot give it to you. It is something that historically has never worked for human beings to take our identity from sexuality. We're actually deeper than that. And it cheapens who we are as people to say that you as a human being are only defined by your sexuality. It cheapens us. It degrades humanity from being made in the image of God. And the beauty of us is not inherent on what we think about sexuality or how we practice these things. Uh, but rather it is in whose we are made in the image of, which is God. So this is kind of lifting up sex and saying it has so much value. And that is, uh, as far as God is concerned, actually idolatry. So that's, that's the first uh, common view, is that uh, sex is sort of God almost. The second common view is that sex is gross. Sex is gross. That is, sex is diminished to something that is only private. We don't talk about it. You know, and it's a little bit unusual we're talking about sex in church, but there you go. So we diminish sex to being private, perverse, as in that's sort of a, a dirty thing. It's something that you know, we don't really talk about. We kind of avoid it. We'll do it if we have to. Or perfunctory. That is, it's kind of mechanical. You know, it's just for having children and the like. This is where we actually... Now, we need to dig into this a little bit. The idea that sex is gross is really that it's just physical and has no spiritual element to it. And that's wrong too. So we're, we're getting extremes now, aren't we? On the one hand, sex is lifted up and saying it's entirely spiritual. It gives you identity, value, purpose, meaning. We're saying actually, like, sex can't uh, achieve what you're trying to uh, give it. If you worship it, it will devalue you. It will give you less the more you give it. On the other hand, we see sex as gross. It's actually just saying it's just physical. There's nothing more going on between two people than the physical acts. And that will also rob you. Because what you're doing to sex is you're saying, it's just about my needs being met. You know, I, we heard this defined a, a little while ago. It's, it's about me getting what I want rather than me giving myself to another person as a servant to them. You know, and perhaps we can even view sex as gross within marriage. We sort of do it only because we have to. And then outside marriage, it becomes lust. It becomes something that has no safety of a covenant. There's no protection. It's just getting your needs met. It's just, you know, a, an expression of yourself without the boundaries that God has put in place for it. And so therefore, we devalue sex because the only value that it has is for a physical expression. It has no controls. We consume it. We use it. And I tell you, this is utterly dangerous for people. It has no control then. It can become perverted and destructive very easily. And it essentially says we become slaves to our desires. Sex becomes a commodity, an exchange between two people to get what they really want. And you wonder why people feel cheap after they've had uh, or been experiencing sexual encounters which they really realise what they were just used for. When uh, sex that is, so we've got the spectrum, if you will, 
We've got uh, sex as God as kind of worshipped and lifted up as the most important fundamental human identity. And then we've got sex as gross on the other hand. And, and really, the, the more you push that, and we've actually seen the rise of this in our day and age, you get more and more pornography. Pornography becomes sort of the currency of the abuse of sex as just a commodity. You're taking from it what you want for your own physical gratification. And it's private, and it's perverse, and it's perfunctionary. That is, it's just a mechanical thing. You're just getting it done for yourself while other people are being abused in the process. And we know the statistics. We, we try and ignore it, but our sort of liberalized society uh, shows us that the, the more we endorse pornography, the more uh, people, and particularly women, are enslaved, be, become sex slaves around the world. The more we endorse this, the more uh, really destructive and perverse things happen in our, uh, around the world and even in our own country. So at both ends, whether it's God or whether it's gross, we see that actually it's not good. We think it's good at the time, but really it eats us from within and begins to destroy us. Both extremes, either making God of sex or devaluing Sex and making it gross lead to either disappointment or even destruction. Okay, so they're the, they're the two common views uh, in a culture, even in the church. The third is much less common. Third view on sex and how we ought to treat it, and this is really the biblical view, is that sex is a gift. Okay, so we've got a spectrum. On the one hand, it's God. On the other hand, it's gross. And then we have a third view, which doesn't even fit on the spectrum, is that sex is a gift. That is, sex is something sacred. It's from God. And it's holy. Now, I'm using the word holy here to, uh, as the, uh, li- in the literal sense, meaning set apart. It's set apart for something. It has purpose and value to it. It's not to be worshipped, and it's not to be devalued. It has a place and a purpose to it. And that is within a beautiful thing called a covenant of marriage. So, the way we ought to think about sex is that sex is something that God has set apart. And He has created it as a good thing. You know who authored sex? God did. He made it. And so, you know, like, typical bloke, I try and sort of, uh, you know, when I'm trying to make something like Ikea furniture, I try and fit it together myself uh, and put all the bits together. And they get halfway through and then realise I should have read the instructions at the beginning. I don't know if you've done that before and then you have to go and take everything apart and then the screws don't work properly. And then you put it together and it kind of doesn't really work properly. Should have read the instructions, right? From the person who designed it. Do you think that same kind of logic would apply to sexuality? Of course! Like that's totally logical and rational. If God made us, then surely His way of doing sexuality would be best, would be good for us. If God said it was good, then surely if we follow His pattern, it will continue to be good. If we don't follow His pattern and we abuse it, we will make a mess of it. It's very simple, it's very logical, and it's very practical. Uh, In a sermon which became a book uh, by a guy called Tim Keller, he explains uh, the idea of sex in a really interesting way. I want to read this out for you. He says, Sex is supposed to be a sign of what you've done with your whole life, and that's the reason why sex outside of marriage uh, is, is a problem, right? Sex in marriage, according to the Bible, lacks, so sex outside of marriage, according to the Bible, lacks integrity. You're asking someone to do with your body what you're not willing to do with your life. 
You're saying, let's be physically vulnerable with each other. Let's do a physical display, disclose ourselves most deeply to one another, but not our whole lives with vulnerability. So it's saying that sex outside marriage is not part of God's design. Why is that? Because it's supposed to be the most intimate expression of two people being together. But if you're saying, I'm just in... you know, I'm just giving you physically, but I'm not willing to give you my whole life with commitment. I'm not willing to bind myself together with you as two become one flesh. Then it actually lacks integrity. He goes on. But sex inside marriage, it becomes a covenant renewal ceremony. It becomes a commitment apparatus. When you have sex, you're getting married all over again. I'm giving my body to you as a token of how I've given you my entire life. I'm opening to you physically as a symbol of the fact that I've opened to you in every other way. In this context, sex becomes a deepening thing, a nurturing thing. It's like covenant cement. It's like covenant glue. It's a covenant renewal ceremony. You can see the difference, can't you? On the one hand, sex is supposed to be an expression of utter and total commitment to another person, which, where do we get that? Marriage. Till death do us part for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. I'm all in with you. And so the greatest expression of that is sex. And when you don't have sex within that covenant, you cheapen it. You devalue it. You make it less than it ought to be. We misuse it. And so sex cannot be set right unless it doesn't rule us, but as an expression of another spiritual covenant that we ought to treat as a gift from God, something that He has given us to enjoy within the way that he made it. We need to be in a situation where we aren't controlled by our desire for it, but rather serve one another in love with it. Now, this is not news to anyone, but the standards, the Christian standards for sexuality is a high bar, isn't it? I mean, Matthew chapter 6, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, and, and Jesus talks about even if you think the wrong things about another person sexually you've sinned, that's a high bar. But God is saying, and we really see this in our text, God knows what you're thinking. He knows everything that's happened in your life. He knows more about you than you care to remember, which is a scary thought for many people. And you know, I was having a conversation with some people at a wedding, and these um, uh, sort of acquaintances uh, who I see from time to time, and uh, not Christians, uh, very, I would say, progressive in, in their views uh, about sexuality. And they asked me, so what's the deal with, um, you know, Christians and hating gay people? And I was like, just like, had to grab my chair for a minute. <laughs> so is this a conversation you really want to have? And um, anyway, God gave me wisdom, and then I'll, I'll, I'll share with you what I said to them. I said, well, really, it's about love. And I said, oh, and I'm, I'm sure they're thinking, yes, it's about love. Uh, you know, love is love and all that. And I said, well, it's about love because if you really love God and you know that He really loves you, then you'll do anything for Him. You know, it's just like when you get married to someone and you, you're filled with love for them or, or, uh, and you'll do anything for them or for your children. You know, if you really love your children, you'll do anything for them, won't you? You'll give up anything and you do. You, know, you give up things for your children. You make sacrifices. You, you restrict your life for that person. And that's the same with God. Because you know, if you're a Christian person, you love him, you'll do anything for him. And so it's not about like 
God hating particular people for their uh, certain views on sexuality, whatever they are, it's saying, no, God, I love you. And so I will do whatever you want of me. And that is, I will seek to obey your commandments. As Jesus said it. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. They were like, oh, never thought of it that way. There you go. Okay, so how we ought to treat sex, number one. Number two, how sex treats us. How does sex treat us? And this is where we get dig into our text a little bit more. Now, if we are like the uh, woman of the city, that is, we're permissive, progressive about sex, and we really see this in verses 37 to 39, it'll do things to us. You know, if, if we sort of almost have a worshipful sense about sex, that we need to get our identity from our sexuality, we need to fully give ourselves to sex in its various forms and ideas, then we're, you know, we're Im- imbibing uh, this woman of the city. Now, it's implied in the text. It's actually not clear that uh, her, sin is sex- her sins are sexual in nature. But if you read the text, you can kind of read between the lines. So it's implied that she had a reputation. She was a woman of the city, right? When people recognized who she was, they're like, Jesus, you shouldn't be associating with this woman. And particularly, it was a very intimate thing. When she was like weeping kiss, uh, over his feet, she was... Uh, you know, she was um, pouring o- ointment, special ointment, over his feet. It's an intimate situation to some degree. And everyone was like, oh, is that her? Oh, you should, Jesus, you shouldn't be near her. And the Pharisees thinking this. The very religious man's like, hey, this Jesus can't be a prophet. He can't really know the depths of people's hearts because he shouldn't be associating with a woman who has such a bad reputation like this. Now, of course, the woman had come to this um, feast because that was a social custom. The, the Jews were supposed to be uh, people, and particularly the religious leader were supposed to be people who were generous to the poor. And so when they had a big meal, the sort of um, outsiders could come uh, who weren't really invited, but they could come and have the leftovers, essentially. And so she was turning up uh, because you know, she, uh, I guess, wanted dinner. And when she was discovered, she was unwanted by the host. Can you imagine? And, and you, you think she would know, right? That she was unwanted. You know, she, pu- she would know all about her past. She's a woman of the city, had a reputation for it. Can you imagine how she felt? The sort of, the associations with uh, guilt and perhaps even shame, you know, that she's this person that's looked down upon by the religious elite, how she felt. And yet... Interestingly, this permissive woman of the city is drawn to Jesus. And she sits at his feet and she weeps over him. She weeps over him. So what does permissiveness do to us? Well, it creates a thing called shame. Now, uh, Brene Brown uh, is very helpful on... um, the definition or the difference between guilt and shame explains it this way. She says, uh, guilt is the idea that I've done bad things, whereas shame is the idea that I'm a bad person and unworthy of love and belonging. So really, shame is the child of guilt. It's when you know that you've done things that you shouldn't have done and that gets inside of you into your very identity. 
and you take it on and you begin to think of yourself as someone who is unworthy of love and belonging amongst people. This is the sort of thing that happens to us when we misuse sex the way that God has given it to us. Now, it's interesting because we can ignore this, right? We can be ignorant of it, certainly, but we can also ignore it. We sort of push away that inherent sense of we should uh, handle this very valuable gift rightly, but from time to time, it does come to bear upon us. um, I've got some sort of cactuses on loan to me at my house. Long story, I won't go into it. But anyway, cactuses, you just assume they're kind of spiky plants and you don't really want to touch them and trust me, you don't want to touch them. Uh, They have poison in the spikes as well as like poking into your skin. The poison stays in there and, you know, tends to uh, leave you with a deep wound. But these these cactuses, which are not very pretty, produce the most beautiful flowers. You would not believe it. Right? These flowers are amazing. They're full of colour, they're bright. And the f- some of these cactuses, the flowers, what they do, uh, as the day and the, and the sun goes up, they open up to the sunlight. And then when the darkness comes, they close up. I'm sure there's a word for that. But it, it, it is quite an amazing thing that these cactuses work that way. So you imagine when they're exposed to the sun, you see their beauty. You see how wonderful and good they are. And when they're exposed to darkness, they close and you lose the beauty. It is concealed. And it is sad that shame is like this. When the darkness of the world and the darkness of sexuality gets to us, we are closed to the beauty of God. Ordinarily, it closes us off to God. There becomes this barrier between us and Him. And yet, and yet, We see this woman of the city who had a reputation and yet she was drawn to Jesus like the flower was drawn to the sunlight but her shame did not let her, so did not control her enough to pull her away from Jesus. In fact, for some reason, she was drawn closer to Jesus despite her guilt and shame for being a woman of the city. For some reason, for some reason, she was able to come near to him This is totally the opposite of the way things should work. In the Bible, we constantly see the separation between holy and common, clean and unclean. You know, and the Pharisee picked it up. Jesus is supposed to be a holy man. You shouldn't be associating with people like this. What's going on? How can Jesus be so close to someone with such a bad reputation? What is going on here? We even see later in verse 47 that Jesus knows her sins. He says, which are many. Jesus knows her life. Jesus knows more than she dares to remember. And yet still he did not reject her. What is going on here? Okay, so that is the permissiveness, how permissiveness treats us. And there's a real question mark about what's going on here with Jesus. And we'll get back to that in a minute. There's also a situation in the text here where we see what happens when we have a real conservatism about us when it regards sex? And we see this from the Pharisee. You know, this Pharisee, religious leader, uh, invites Jesus, whom he calls a teacher, into his home. This uh, Pharisee, contrary to the woman of the city, would have had a really good reputation. He would have been a well-respected religious man, 
And he would have seen himself as you know, inviting another religious man for a dignified dinner and discussion of sort of lofty spiritual things. He would not have seen himself as a sexual sinner, at least on the outside. And so he sees this woman and, and is indignant that she is in his home when he recognises who she really is. When he remembers her reputation, he thinks, man, she should not be here. Certainly not around this one who they call the Christ. And so this Pharisee looks down upon her. Notice that he first looks down upon her and then he looks down upon Jesus for associating with the woman. He doubts that Jesus could be a prophet because he does not supernaturally know the reputation of this woman, or he would not be here. That's what we see in verse 39. This is an insight into the Pharisees' thoughts. It says, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is. How degrading is he through his language? Who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So what does conservatism do to us? It makes us think of ourselves as little sinners, and those people out there or those people over there as big sinners. It produces twins, pride and self-righteousness. It rejects Jesus' mercy and forgiveness in place of our own morality and our own spotless reputation. It assumes also that we know better than Jesus. Although, ironically, the very thing that Jesus accuses, uh, the, the Pharisee accuses Jesus of not knowing, which is this woman's history, he knows exactly what the guy's thinking as well. Ironically, it is conservatism, sexual conservatism, that keeps the Pharisee out of Jesus' forgiveness and mercy. That is interesting. So a few points of application for this uh, second point on how sex treats us. Firstly, pride blinds us to our guilt and closes us to God's grace. A guy called Sam Albury, who, interestingly, is a same-sex attracted, is a bloke, a same-sex attracted, celibate Christian minister. You'd never think those two would go together, but there you go, right? Same-sex attracted, celibate Christian minister who has traditional biblical views on sex and sexuality and he says that the whole idea that some people are straight and some people are not is totally wrong. We are all broken sinners sexually before a holy God. Not one of you is perfect in this. Not me, not you. And we all need Jesus. There are, and so the distinction between, you know, people who are sort of bent sexually, perhaps, and those who are straight is wrong. And the way that we get to this is through Jesus' teaching. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, says, if you think, even think about things outside of God's prescription, not do them, but even think about them, about things outside of God's prescription for sexuality in the Bible, you've sinned sexually, and you're a sexual sinner. It's a great leveling of the world, is that God knows what we think and we see it in the text here. Except if you are proud and you think, well, no one's seen what I've done. I'm not doing anything on the outside. It's definitely happened on the inside, but I'm not doing anything on the outside. 
then you will close yourself off to the love and mercy of God. That's the first application. The second application is this. Humility produces brokenness towards sin and openness to grace. Humility produces brokenness towards sin and openness to grace. You see, this woman, she didn't go near to anyone else but Jesus. Why is that? Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. She wept at Jesus' feet. Why? Because she loved him. Why? Because she sensed something. She may have heard something in his teaching before, but she sensed something that drew her near to him that she could be accepted by him. Not on the basis of her being a good person, because, gee, she was a sinner and Jesus knew it. But there was something else going on there, and that was the grace of God. Jesus was drawing her in by not rejecting her and by his ability to do something that no one else can do. He says to her in verse 48, your sins are forgiven. No one else can do that but God alone. This is not the first time Jesus has done this to someone. He's forgiven their sins. And the people around at the dinner table, the people who are sitting in the lounge listening to this uh, conversation, what Jesus is teaching, verse 49, then those who were at table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Who is this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? What is Jesus saying about himself? He is God. And when you sin, you sin against Him. And so there is one person who has the authority to forgive sins. Who is that? God. Now we might think, well, Jesus hasn't yet gone to the cross. How can He forgive sins? What is Jesus doing here? He is saying, I will take your sins from your ledger, from your record, and put them on mine. So that when He goes to the cross at the end of Luke's gospel, He will die for her sins. He is saying that she is wiped clean and forgiven. That her reputation to God is the one that matters and she is clean. She is near and at the feet of Jesus and the man who is proud, who thinks he's not a sexual sinner, is far away from Jesus. Third application. Subjective morality won't stand up for those who are sinned against sexually. I'm going to be brief on this, but there's much more we could say about this, and um, this is something that you can chat to someone about after the service if you need to. But we're in a culture where what's right for you is right for you, and what's right for me is right for me. Sort of subjective morality. That is, you do what you want as long as you're really not hurting anyone. And that's okay. But we don't tend to apply that when someone is sinned against sexuality. When someone has been sinned against in the realm of sexuality, this idea of subjective morality doesn't hold. You want justice. But what can you appeal to if you think that everything moral is subjective? Well, what's right for you is right for you and what's right for me is right for me. We want an objective justice. We want someone to go, this is wrong. There will be a judgment for it. That kind of view won't hold for the abused person. The only way to handle this is to know that there is a God of justice, a God of objective justice who has a standard and will call people to account for doing it eternally. Relative justice or morality does not work for the abused. 
And that is why there's a fundamental problem to the way we think about sexuality in our culture because we cannot apply it completely. We can't say, do whatever you like, love is love. It doesn't work. The Bible tells us in very strong language in 1 Thessalonians 4 that God is an avenger in these things. He will deal with it. And that is the only way that if you have been wronged in this sense that you can actually hold to some sense of identity and worth because you know that you have an advocate. You know that you have someone who will stand in your place and do what is right and just on your behalf. All right, we're going to finish shortly. We've looked at how we ought to treat sex, firstly. Secondly, we've looked at how sex treats us, and it's a, it's a bit menacing, really. But thirdly and finally, we want to see how Jesus treats us. So how did Jesus respond? Well, he accepts this woman of the city into his presence. He doesn't... So he, the, the, the Pharisee and Jesus are actually further apart. They're having a, Jesus teaches uh, the Pharisee about God's heart for people and how people ought to respond to him. And he, and he gives a really short parable. Let me uh, read this out for you from verse 41. It says this, A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now, which of them would love him more? Now, this is a sort of a very logical, practical scenario, right? Of course, the person who had a great debt would love uh, the money lender more. Of course. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that the woman realized that she had a great debt against her ledger. She was a sinner and she knew it. And so she was weeping at Jesus' feet, doing something quite beautiful for him because she realized who she was before a holy God. And so she was welcomed by his forgiveness and grace. She was welcomed. And yet, the man who thought he was a little sinner, he didn't even bother to come to Jesus' feet. He was sort of kept him at a distance through sort of abstract ideas and conversation and speaking to him as teacher, but really thinking in his mind that this Jesus is, is not good enough for me. You know, this is a fascinating situation because ordinarily in the Bible, uh, and you see this time and time again, um, people who are unclean for whatever reason, through sin or through sort of ceremonial uncleanness. So in the Old Testament, to come into the presence of God, you had to be very well prepared. You had to be bathed, you know, you you couldn't um, sort of be sick in any way. You had to be wearing certain clothes, you had to have done certain ceremonies to come into the presence of God. And uh, typically, uh, in and we see this actually earlier on in the New Testament, uh, when people were lepers, uh, that is, had a skin disease of some sort, they had to be excluded uh, from the from religious worship. They were excluded essentially from being a part of the community of God's people and to live outside of the city and they had to yell out if anyone got too close, unclean, unclean. Now, when Jesus met uh, a leper who would have spent most of his time shouting out to other people to keep away, I'm unclean. When Jesus met a leper, rather than Jesus becoming unclean because he was associated with the leper, the leper became clean and his skin disease was healed. It's like a total reversal of what normally happens. It's like God's way of doing things is breaking into humanity. 
God is restoring things as they ought to be. He's writing people on the inside. And so when this woman who was like a sexually unclean, at least according to the standards of the day, came near Jesus, you notice that Jesus doesn't get unclean by associating with her, even though that's what the Pharisee thought. Notice that she is changed by being in the presence of Jesus. Something happens to her. She's made new in God's sight. So what we see, and I'll say it explicitly now, Jesus rejects the Pharisee on the basis of his pride, but accepts this woman of the city, this sinful woman, on the basis of her faith in him and grants to her forgiveness. And so this tells us something really important. At the heart of questions about sexuality, our response needs to be, well, who is Jesus and what has he done? Uh, I remember someone who said in a sermon um, some time ago that I was listening to, they said, uh, when people sort of come and say, oh, you know, like, um, oh, I, I, I kind of want to be a Christian, but I don't really want to be all in because I, I know that I have to give things up, like, you know, sleeping with whoever I want or uh, following my um, sexual orientation or, or sort of believe, and it's often about sex, actually, because remember, our culture has lifted up sex to be so important, but that's the most prominent issue that comes up. And so people were reluctant to give themselves over to Christianity because they're worried about what it will cost them. And uh, the person in the sermon says, well, I often respond by saying, well, actually, that's really not the question you need to answer. Uh, That is, what will it cost you? You need to answer a prior question, which is, did Jesus really die for the forgiveness of sin? And did Jesus really rise from the dead as a declaration that he is the Son of God? and Lord of the universe? Because if you get that one right, then all the other questions get answered afterwards. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Did Jesus die for the forgiveness of sins? If he did, then the Christian sexual ethic is pretty simple. Do it. Because Jesus is who he said he is. And it reorientates our whole life. It's not about, well, I I don't want to be fully in because I have to give up my rights. No. Christianity is dying to self. It's saying, I'm all in for God and his way of doing things because Jesus is Lord. Lastly, uh, I was reading a book on the first missionary to the Muslim world uh, this week. And fascinating book. This is sort of set in the uh, 13th century like a good 800 years ago. And this was when the Crusades were happening. So typically, the way of sort of, uh, this, is a, this is the dirty past of um, Christianity and Christendom, uh, typically the way of people handling uh, the Islamic faith uh, during the Crusades was uh, repent or die. They sort of went out with the sword. And if people didn't convert to Christianity on the spot, they killed them. Not a, not a great way to handle things, right? It doesn't sound very Christian at all. But that's what they were doing. And so there's a guy called Raymond Lull, who's a Spanish guy. And uh, this was so just after um, uh, there was a whole lot of uh, 
Muslim people had come in and sort, sort of conquered part of Spain, and then uh, the, um, the sort of Christians had taken back uh, big chunks of the country. And this guy, Raymond Lull, was very wealthy. He was sort of a very prominent man. He was son of a, um, a sort of wealthy general. And so he sort of quickly, uh, after, as he grew up, was able to work in the royal court. And he had a wife, but he had a very licentious life. So he had a wife, but he was well known as a poet and as a singer-songwriter. And so apparently he used to go around serenading women other than his wife, like just walking around with a sort of primitive guitar, serenading women, like uh, around the city, so that he could you know, sleep with them, because he could do whatever he wanted. It was a very uh, permissive uh, culture in some ways, although it was Christian on the whole, very strange. And so this guy was, you know... Um, in the midst of writing a love song for a married woman that he couldn't get to love him, right? In the midst of doing that. And suddenly, and remember this is kind of, uh, they had a lot of visions and stuff back then, and it's a bit Roman Catholic, so, but this is what happened to him, right? This is what he recounts happened to him. He says, suddenly he had a picture on his hands of a crucifix, a crucifix with Jesus on the cross on, on both of his hands, and he looked at his hands and he realized, hey, I'm a sinner. He, re- he sort of, like he looked at what the cross and Jesus dying on this cross for him and realized his, t- like his whole life was messed up, that he was impure, that he was someone who couldn't approach a holy God unless he went through the crucified Jesus and the risen Jesus. And this is what he says about himself. He lived his whole life in impurity, the lap of luxury, doing whatever he wanted sexually. He was married with children, mind you, as well. And this is what he says. He says, but there arose the doubt. How can I, defiled with impurity, rise and enter a holier life? Night after night, we are told, he lay awake, a prey to despondency and doubt. He wept like Mary Magdalene, remembering how much and how deeply he had sinned. At length the thought occurred, Christ is meek and full of compassion. He invites all to come to him. He will not cast me out. And with that thought came consolation. Because he was forgiven so much, he loved the more and concluded that he would forsake the world and give up all for his Savior. So when he saw the crucified Jesus, and when it really got into his heart, it took a bit bit of time, so that's okay. If you're just thinking about this for the first time, it takes a while to get into your heart, right? But when it really got into his heart, it changed him. And so he became someone right, who should have hated the Muslim world because they had uh, ripped through part of Spain, killed a lot, whole lot of his people, and, they were, like, and the, it was, no, they were trying to raise up the Crusades again to go back and take back the Holy Lands. And yet he became someone who loved Muslim people and he learned Arabic over nine years and then went over there to teach people who hated him and who he was supposed to hate about a loving God who cares for them and wants to be their saviour. What happened? There's an application for us, I think, which is really important. He realised how much he had forgiven and so he began to love God so much that it changed him. It transformed him from a person of that culture and day who hated uh, the enemies of the 
the people of that land to someone who loved the enemies of the people of that land. It changed him. When God's forgiveness got into his heart, it changed who he was. He actually died as a martyr. He actually went into all the universities in Europe training other people to become missionaries to the Muslims. He was the, the first father of Christian missionaries to Islamic countries. Because God forgave him of his sexual sin, and so it changed his view. And I want to tell you this as my last point. That the guilt and the shame associated with sexual sin will stop you from serving God as you ought to. No matter where you are in the spectrum, it will do it. You won't understand the love of God until you come to the feet of Jesus. Whether you think you're a little sinner like the Pharisee or a big sinner like the the woman of the city, you will not be changed by the love of God until you come to the feet of Jesus and you realize your forgiveness from Him. Till you approach Him by faith and say, this Jesus offers me forgiveness and I will receive it because He died on the cross for me. When you take that upon yourself personally, it will change you. Do you know this guy, Raymond Lally, uh, went back to the, his covenant of marriage with his wife, sold all his stuff because he was very wealthy, stopped living a licentious life, became a husband and a dad to his children and his wife. It will change you. And it sent him to his enemies to preach the gospel of God's forgiveness and grace. And that is the power that God has to transform you and me from a life that is controlled by sex into one where sex is in its proper place. I'm going to finish there. Let's pray. I'm going to welcome the band up. Father God, we thank you that uh, as we consider this uh, topic of sex, uh, we see that you have a right way to do it. But you have an approach uh, to us, which one that welcomes the sinner and forgives our sins on the basis of you dying on the cross for them. And so Lord God, draw us near to yourself that we would stop thinking about these things wrongly and come to you, our God and our Savior, who changes the lives of people for the best. That was to live for you. As you lived, you died and you rose again for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.